this is the conclusion of a novel in which the narrator is um, unreliable. Characters at the edges and on the edge. Remaining a perpetual possibility. Lonely, violent, deeply American life. Only in a world of speculation. True ease in writing comes from art, not chance. Very fine is my Valentine. Very fine and very mine. You're listening to the Grand Podcast of this with John Pistelli. Great and puffed up with his retinue. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Grand Podcast of this. I'm your co-host, John Pistelli, and I'm here in a room of his own with my co-host, the owl on the ledge, Sam Worthington. How are you doing, John? (laughs) Is this payback for when I said, oh, I'm little kidding. I'm little kidding. (laughs) I'm like Virginia Woolf. (laughs) Virginia Woolf is my favorite author. We need to do more I voices. read Wolf and all the little schoolboys. Can't read Wolf for all really intelligent. <laughs> when I was in college, my roommate and I had a picture of Virginia Wolf hanging in the kitchen. Wow. Yeah, I Is that for aesthetic purposes? Well, it was the the young, the youthful, beautiful picture of her, so there was that, but we loved her. We we were fans. Yeah, there's a lot to love. And why did you call me an owl on a ledge, John? Because of a uh, Facebook post you wrote? That's right. I'm the Facebook king. <laughs> I don't need any other platform. No. I'm serious. <laughs> I'm so comfortable talking with people, exchanging witticisms with, with people in their 60s and 70s <laughs> who at least have lived in the United States in a period where there was interesting and nourishing culture. Yeah, I made this post. Do you know how many words are within knowledge? How many? They include eight, actually. I pointed out six of them. There's now. There's no to know. There's no and oh. There's an owl on edge and ledge. And I know now of no knowledge pertaining to the owl perched on the edge of a ledge. In this modernist register, we begin episode 18. John, what are we talking about today? We are talking about, it might be episode 19, might, might it not? Well, John! John. <laughs> N- numerology was never your strong point. <laughs> but you are a good host. Now, what are we talking about today? Today we're talking, we're going to do a, a sort of Virginia Woolf melange. Uh, you have read for the first time Mrs. Dalloway. I recently reread A Room of One's Own. Um, and I thought we would, because uh, this is 2022, Sam. This is the year of modernism, even though Mrs. Dalloway was published in 1925 and A Room of One's Own was published in 1929. Still, the, the 1922, the year of the wasteland, the year of Ulysses. So we're, we're getting more into that modernist zone. And I thought we would talk kind of in general about Virginia Woolf, maybe a little bit about, um, well, you have no history with Virginia Woolf, right? This is your first? Well, I was raised by a, a, a lover of Virginia Woolf, um, but this is the second time I've read Mrs. Dalloway, mm-hmm. and the first time I've talked about it with a adept and skilled scholar of the modernist period such as John. So, John, you tell me the frame in which I should spout my words. Okay. Um, so... Uh, I'll just so I think Virginia Woolf is an interesting figure. Um, she 
in the early 20th century was considered, I think, a minor modernist for reasons to do with gender and aesthetics, um, sort of second, second string behind Joyce or Lawrence um, among the novelists. And with the feminist movement um, starting in the 60s, I think she then rose up to the first rank of the modernist writers and probably even surpassed Lawrence and now sort of sits there at the top with with Joyce on top of the modernist canon of novelists. Um, and that too has to do with gender and with aesthetics. Um, and by the time I got to her, so I started reading Virginia Woolf when I was in college. She is, I find from teaching her, uh, a lover or hater figure. Um, because you have a couple things going on. One is you have the stream of consciousness style in her most famous novels, which wasn't her only – one of the most admirable things about Wolf is she never wrote the same book twice. And mm. she has novels in every style. Mm -hmm. And she was an accomplished essayist as well um, and a great literary critic. But the two novels that really got canonized were Mrs. Dalloway and To the Lighthouse, both of which are stream of consciousness in style. And students naturally find that off-putting because – Kind of like we talked about in the Toni Morrison episode, she uses the same style. You almost have to read a book like that twice because you're just plunged in mm -hmm. to this stream and you end up uh, having to orient yourself with later information to figure out what's going on at the beginning. So you just mm -hmm. have to allow yourself to be lost for, mm -hmm. for a few pages and you almost have to read the book twice. And you have to, you have to um, receive – the gravity of the prose through the subtlest fluctuations of the inside of the most inmost details of a character's subjectivity. Not their actions, not so much the responses of the people around them, not so much their trail of um, um, behaviors, but these tiny little changes in subjectivity, which are not overtly and um, generously available. They're subtle. Yes. And I think that where Wolf succeeds, and it's the same place that Joyce and Eliot and Faulkner and then later Toni Morrison succeed, and I, I think maybe some writers that were more acclaimed aren't, aren't actually as adept at this, like Lawrence, um, is that when you don't know what the words mean, the words still have a kind of power and authority and rhythm, and you can read it out loud, pick it up anywhere and read it out loud, and you're still impressed with the poetry of it before you fully grasp what is being said. Mm -hmm. um, so I that's one reason people don't like Wolf. Another reason people don't like Wolf is uh, we're very intersectional on this podcast is uh, uh, so if she was – um, maybe underestimated due to gender, uh, a reason people don't like her is because of class, that there's definitely she was born to the kind of upper upper echelons of the middle class of the Victorian period. Her father, Leslie Stephen, the author of the Dictionary of National Biography, um, she was in this uh, and he was always having, you know, I think he had Charles Darwin over to dinner. I yes, mean, she's yes. she's of the elite. And then she she was she was bred in erudition. Yeah, and she joins the Bloomsbury Group, which is 
kind of the upper middle class avant-garde in the same way. Maybe for some of the connotations, if you want to know what some of the connotations of that might be, if you're not familiar with it, think of like Brooklyn socialist podcasters today. That's like, about the last thing I want to think about. <laughs> right. Well, and I hate the Bloomsbury group. I hate I hate Wolf's Milieu. I, I hate a lot of those people. Um, but but you love them. I love her. You love her. I love so her. So why do you love her? And then instantly. why do you love Clarissa Dalloway? Why, why do you love why do you love Clarissa Dalloway? I think that yes, she's privileged. Yes, she's elite. But what Wolf's power is and the power of that method of writing is to go – you know, people often talk about the particular versus the universal. But the trick to this stream of consciousness writing, this inward mode of writing a novel where the narrator is kind of buried within the consciousness of the character – we tend to think, well, the particulars down here and the universals up here. And so a universal way to write a novel would be like um, Tolstoy or George Eliot in the 19th century with this thousand foot up view, this narrator as historian. But actually the universal might be found at the most base level. So take a character of any class if you're Joyce, if you're Wolf, if you're Toni Morrison, take somebody, whether they're enslaved or whether they're an aristocrat, and go all the way down to the most basic level of that experience, the fear of death, the feel of the sun on your skin, mm -hmm. the, the way it feels to walk out and see someone. What's more universal than the operations of consciousness? Yeah. Um, and, the, you know, I'm not – so we'll get to this. That can be historicized and that can be critiqued and that's um, – that too is maybe a cultural production. But it's a good one and it's a powerful one and it has – it's not universal as if the universal is something you read in a book. But it's universalizing. It's something you come to feel. It's something you come to share. It's something you come to realize. And I fell in love with Mrs. Dalloway the minute I picked it up. Uh, and Wolf has a good eye for – what Link's experience is. Clarissa Dalloway is an artist. Uh, in her time, in her class, in her gender, the only way she could be an artist was to throw parties for, her, you know, for uh, on behalf of her husband, who's this conservative political figure. But she's an artist. Now, what do you think about this paragraph? So Mrs. Dalloway is getting ready for a party. There's nothing to explain about what happens in this novel. Really, there's no, no arc that we need to. There's no plot. One day, trace. she One throws day. a party. Three urinations, one day. <laughs> uh, That's Ulysses. <laughs> Here's a little bit of her prose. The hall of the house was cool as a vault. Mrs. Dalloway raised her hand to her eyes, and as the maid shut the door to, and she heard the swish of Lucy's skirts, she felt like a nun who has left the world and feels fold round her the familiar veils and the response to old devotions. The cook whistled in the kitchen, she heard the click of the typewriter. It was her life, and bending her head over the hall table, she bowed beneath the influence, felt blessed and purified, saying to herself, as she took the pad with the telephone message on it, how moments like this are buds on the tree of life. Flowers of darkness they are, she thought, as if some lovely rose had blossomed for her eyes only. Not for a moment did she believe in God, but all the more, she thought, taking up the pad, must one repay in daily life to servants, yes, to dogs and canaries? Above all, to Richard, her husband, who was the foundation of it, of the gay sounds, of the green lights, of the cook even whistling. 
for Mrs. Walker was Irish and whistled all day long. One must pay back from this secret deposit of exquisite moments, she thought, lifting the pad, while Lucy stood by her, trying to explain how. I missed it all away, man. So what? Has, <laughs> so this is an instant in the kitchen. Could be five seconds. Could be forty-five seconds. Yeah. But what is happening here? Where is this prose taking place, and from what perspective is it being generated? Well, it's being generated from the perspective of Clarissa Dalloway, um, and I think it's the most generous way to portray that character. There's something Shakespearean in Wolf, the way that she will fully inhabit characters and let them have their say from within, and you can make up your own mind what you think. You don't have to... Uh, you know, is, is Hamlet crazy or is he putting on an act? Is she just some uh, awful rich bitch condescending to her Irish cook? Or do we admire at least her sense of noblesse oblige that she wants to repay her privilege with the generation of something beautiful? Um, and I, I think that the novel does does at least sort of answer its enabling condition of privilege by contributing something beautiful and aware and critical. And I mean, notice she's aware. She's not oblivious to the, her mm-hmm. surroundings. She hates or her what, servant. <laughs> yeah, I think Wolf hated her servant. Um, yeah. yeah, no, I mean, there's no there's no getting around it, but, but she's aware. happy to serve. <laughs> please, Clarissa. No, please. <laughs> but there's, you know, there's a character in the book, you know, Miss Kilman? Sort yeah, of yeah, jackbooted yeah. lesbian. Uh, she yeah, gets his, a lot the, of good lines. History scholar. Yeah, the, she. <laughs> the, the Nazi. Yeah, who's in love with uh, with uh, what's Clarissa's daughter's name, Elizabeth. Yeah. Um, yeah. She's German, of course. She's German, Kilman. Uh, but she gets a lot of good lines. She says, "Mrs. Dalloway is the worst, the worst kind of person. The rich with a smattering of culture." Um, I think Clarissa is fully sort of beheld in all of her flaws and limitations. And she had a she had a uh, a bohemian boyfriend. Yeah. So one of the ways I think about this novel is there's almost a what if quality biographically to it. So Clarissa grows up in a world where she has sort of access to the, to this more bohemian culture and mm-hmm. she remembers her biggest erotic memory is her kiss with Sally Seton and she remembers Sally as being almost this proto-adolescent new woman. She has this recollection of her running naked down the hall um, and then she had this boyfriend Peter who was more sensitive artist type and she ends up marrying the much more buttoned-up conservative mm-hmm. Richard. And I often think it's almost as if Wolf is thinking, what if she herself had mm-hmm. chosen a different kind of life in which she would have sort of cut off access to the more bohemian world and entered you know, conservative high society? Of, <laughs> most of the real lovely, mature, worldly women that I know and deeply respect a lot, most of them, now that I come to think of it, as I've been, um, you know, as I've been given access to their personal lives because I'm so charismatic, empathetic, and I'm such a good listener, mm-hmm. and I take an interest in people, so they just share with me. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> just share, you know, it's natural for people, you know, yeah. if they feel safe. <laughs> and so they open up to me and they tell, they tell me about their life. And so I, that pattern emerges. They rolled with some bohemian poet who quoted Shakespeare and they had the time of their life in Annapolis when the war started or whatever. And then Kennedy got killed and 
bam, they they hit their late twenties and they marry the guy who's going to make a stable income, high right. income. Right. But they always think about that Peter, and they always, <laughs> right. always, and they always wonder what would have happened. You know what would have happened? Ramen noodles. Right. That's what would have happened. That's a thing, man. Yeah. High class women, they're smart. Yeah. They get the rush. They get the culture from the starving artists, and then they marry, um, you know, the the CEO of of uh, fucking. Uh, what's that one arms manufacturer? Raytheon. Raytheon. And then <laughs> yeah. they marry the CEO of Raytheon. <laughs> right. Um, and Peter does show up as an adult, and he's pathetic. He's always fiddling with his knife. I mean, one of the m- more amusing things about the novel is all the pathetic male characters all have some kind of prosthetic phallus. Uh, so Peter can't stop fiddling with his knife. There's another guy who's got a pen. Uh, her husband wants to bring her flowers, and he's holding it out like a sword. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is this cutting this cutting of men down to size. You're saying do. the penis is represented in a non-penis object. Yeah, okay. yeah. And, and I think Wolf sees this fault in men, this kind of— uh, which this is a cliche now. If a contemporary writer did this, I would think that she she was a hack. But uh, but it wasn't that, and I think that was kind of an original perception then. All right. There was nobody. Her words faded. Don't let our words fade. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great city novel. Yeah. Uh, set in London. Yeah, it is. Um, it's a great novel about. Just walking down the city, crowded city street. People say – people pair this with Ulysses. Obviously, she read Ulysses she, or she read some of it. She didn't like yeah. it. She had a yeah. complicated and mostly bad reaction to it. Um, but one of the – and she, but she was obviously inspired by it. She's like, I'm going to do a one-day novel too. And there are mm-hmm. things about this – but this book is certainly more powerful than Ulysses because it's short and it's concentrated mm-hmm. and it's violent. Um, but – I would point to the difference between London and Dublin. Uh, she has the the big teeming metropolis to work with, and she has that amazing early description of the skywriting airplane and mm-hmm. how this new technology just transfixes the whole populace and everyone's staring into the sky and what's this plane writing? Mm-hmm. And it's incredibly prophetic to me of uh, new media. It's very Lady's reputation. 
She has gone a roving, a roving fair maid. All we can say about them is that they seem to like people to think before they use them and to feel before they use them. But to think and to feel not about them, about something different. They are highly sensitive, easily made self-conscious. They do not like to have their purity or their impurity discussed. If you start a society for pure English, they will show their resentment by starting another for impure English. Hence the unnatural violence of much modern speech. Until he watched for a couple of years and started thinking that maybe it wasn't such a good idea after all, that maybe Georgie Boy didn't have the stuff. They're highly democratic too. They believe that one word is as good as another. Uneducated words, as good as educated words. Uncultivated words, as good as cultivated words. There are no ranks or titles in their society. She wasn't particularly aggressive. In short, they hate anything that stamps them with one meaning or confines them to one attitude. For it is our nature to change. Perhaps that is our most striking peculiarity. You can't afford to waste good liquor. Not on your salary, not on an associate professor's salary. Perhaps then one reason why we have no great poet, novelist, or critic writing today is that we refuse to allow words their liberty. We pin them down to one meaning, their useful meaning, the meaning which makes us steps train, the meaning which makes us pass the examination. Hi, Sam. Hey, Mom. How are you? I'm good. You're on the pod here with John. Hi. <laughs> Hi, John. <laughs> How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm good. <laughs> I'm just I'm just here. I just got back from the nursery. Not the child nursery, the garden nursery. What did you buy? Uh, I got perennials so that there would be sunny and there would be bees. And um, so that's good. I got to plant them in the back. Nice. Well, um, I can I can help you do that. Oh, good. Great. So, Mom. So, tell me about your relationship with the Room of One's Own and Virginia Woolf. Okay. Well, the, the, I am not an expert in Virginia Woolf, um, and uh, but I do have a certain relevance here because I am from the previous century. So, in that respect, I'm closer to Woolf than you two in in actual life experience so that either makes me uh irrelevant or highly relevant one of the two i discovered virginia wolf in 1980 um and that was really under pretty typical circumstances for a woman of that time um i was in a, a bad domestic arrangement um also known as an ill-conceived first marriage sort of a casabon kind of situation um, I was, the, there was a recession on, um, a bad economy, bad job market. I was uncertain of my skills. I didn't have a job. I was lacking confidence in my abilities because I was raised uh, by a mother in the pre-feminist era. Mm -hmm. So to solve my problems, I went to graduate school in English literature. Yeah. At, the, at the University of Southern California. And I took a class. I'm going to go on here for a minute. You can edit You the go on. Stream of right, consciousness. I took a right. I took a class, and that's one of the things I appreciated about Wolf because I really enjoyed uh, the way that she, t that her, her, you know, even in her essays, you know, I just really enjoyed hopping on her train of thought, her stream of thought. And that, that's one one of the things about her. I took a class with a, a professor named James Durbin, 
who in his time had been a kind of public professor for the university. Um, uh, you know, and, and he would be he would he would be affixed to USC's adult program lecture series. Like in 1960, he would give lectures to the public um, on you know questions about you know the new American fiction after Hemingway and Faulkner. What question mark you know? And and he would produce you know videos um, for the Encyclopedia Britannica discussing Shirley Jackson's The Lottery. He was really kind of one of those public facing people um but by the time i took his class he was he was really getting on he was well past retirement and his class was kind of an afternoon gab session i think it was like a the 20th century novel um but it really it could have been just like titled bloomsbury gossip featuring rumors about Lytton strachey's exploits something you know i mean i just he was just he loved the literature he loved talking about sort of the characters all around things and i remember i became really fascinated with wolf in that class and i can't really exactly say why but during that semester i bought every book of essays letters her fiction her biography later in life i named my cat mrs dalloway i read everything about her i read all of her little missives her letters about her housekeeper i knew a lot about her at one point well tell me I went in, tell me why tell me what is it right, what? I, I get it i i, I can't I, I i just went into journalism forgot most of it i forgot so much <laughs> i even misspelled her name like recently i replaced it with the tom wolf spelling so like that was disconcerting so i went back and and i tried to figure out what it was that i really uh, that really, you know, caught me with her. I, I don't know if I've totally figured it out, but I think to me, obviously, um, there were a couple things that really caught me with her. And one of them I've already mentioned, I mean, she, for me was, um, she really, uh, uh, articulated this female imaginative writing, this, this, this voice that I really had not encountered before. Uh, so that I could really, you know, uh, I, it was as if she reminded me of the intimate voice of females that I uh, talked to all the time, and 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 she, so there was that, and it was it was represented in her fiction. It was certainly represented in a room of one's own, which we can talk about. Um, and she was advocating for that. It was she was articulating it and demonstrating it in her fiction, and articulating it in a room of one's own. The other thing, too, was her role as a critic. She was prolific because I think most people think about um, the, the sort of her, her literature and then that essay, which is part of her criticism, as her contribution. But her influence as a critic was, was really profound. She wrote a lot of criticism, and um, she had a, 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 a big impact in defining modernism and articulating how we thought of the works that were coming out in the first part of the 20th century. And I want to say on the Toni Morrison episode, I think John referred to Beckett's statement on, on Joyce having the whole world in his novels. And it, it struck me when I was reading Mr. Bennett and Mrs. Brown mm. that in 1924, at a time when Beckett was studying at Trinity College, I believe, that is, you know, Wolf articulated exactly that statement when she was talking about the group of writers that were breaking with, you know, those she called the, the Edwardians. 
saying that basically, you know, Stern, Lawrence Stern and Jane Austen were interested in things in themselves, in character in itself, in the book in itself, so that everything exists inside the book, nothing outside. So that concept of a book having the world in itself was already a concept that Wolf was articulating. So I think that I was inspired by Wolf's voice that she not just didn't just put in her novels, but articulated in her criticism. And I, I just felt I could connect with that. Wow, Mom, that was, that was great. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that was, mm -hmm. that was beautiful. Um, yeah, well, one other thing, one other thing. Just what, two what other things. About, <laughs> yeah, one other thing. Mr. Bennett and Mrs. Brown, we were talking about that. I just, I just was very inspired by that essay, which she wrote in 1924. Um, which she was writing and thinking about at the same time with when she was writing Mrs. Dalloway. I went just about to publish it. And, you know, she, she has this famous line in that essay where she talks about, I believe all novels begin with an old lady in the corner opposite. And her point in writing that essay was really a response to novelists who were dressing their novels all by exterior features. And, you know, her her point was that, that, that writers need to dispense with conventions that are handed down in favor of what allows them to see and render the characters that that they can actually see and invent that are useful to them. And then she talks about, you know, uh, writers kind of this 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 um this tradition or legacy of, of writers, not as a, as a legacy of uh, a tradition of convention, but as, you know, um, uh, artists who are companions in the railway carriage, because when she talks about that essay, she talks about observing the, a woman in a railway carriage and inventing kind of a whole story for this person that other, other writers can walk into that railway carriage and, and invent other stories based on this person they see but that that is really the task of sort of literary tradition not a set of conventions or a set way of doing yeah. doing something yeah yeah so and today I was inspired and, by that and today you can get on the the 21 on lake street and be inspired by people um overdosing on fentanyl well you can but you have to look yeah mm -hmm. yeah I mean, you know, you know, it's like I believe all novels begin with a fill in the blank in the corner opposite. Right. Oh, I'm right. not sure what you see. Right on. Okay, well Yeah, well, that No, that was very interesting. I um so I discovered Wolf and I I really loved her fiction when I first found her in the early 2000s and then I ended up writing a uh chapter of a doctoral dissertation on her under an advisor who was maybe of a kind of a later generation's way of looking at things. So by that time, Wolf had been so assimilated into the canon that it was pretty fashionable to bring a pretty uh, harsh interrogatory, sort of like Marxist approach to seeing her as this kind of elitist, modernist figure. Um, I think my advisor in her book called her an aesthetic capitalist commodifying a new version of the self that would 
uh, be congruent with consumer society because Mrs. Dalloway is always shopping. And so we're these fluid, mobile stream of consciousness selves that are available to shop. Uh, so I ended up sort of having to to almost take a defensive position on Wolf uh, in my dissertation. And I think what I admire so much about her work and particularly Mrs. Dalloway is her just fearlessness in presenting a character and there's not really a stable authorial position toward a figure like Clarissa Dalloway. So you have to take her in all her complexity and you can sort of harshly judge her when she doesn't understand what's happening in the Armenian genocide or when she's being dismissive toward the cook and you can admire her when she's an artist throwing her parties and you can sympathize with her nostalgia for her kiss for Sally Seton. And you're just sort of given this character and Wolf is just completely unafraid to give you uh, this character that you have to make up your own mind about, and she's not going to give you this moral judgment. Yeah, I mean, I I, I see it that way too. I was also struck too when I when I reread uh, Mrs. Dalloway how much um, how many how much we get into the. Uh, the mind of other characters too, especially in the beginning of the book where, you know, we're, we're really into the mind of um, uh, Peter Walsh and, and kind of reflecting on his own sort of uh, failures or regrets or inadequacies as well. And there's a fearlessness there, that same thing that you're, that you're, that you're talking about. Um, I, I, I agree with that, but I don't, I, I think that's, that's right. Well, this has been really nice, but now it might be time to argue about feminism. <laughs> okay. Well, I don't know. What, 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 what do we have to argue about? What, are, you, you're, are you first or second wave, Mom? I don't think I'm first wave, man. I mean, I think that's really like we're yeah. talking turn of, the, turn of the other century. Right. Yeah, I'm probably second wave. Yeah, yeah. we're talking Phyllis Wheatley. <laughs> No, that's even yeah, earlier. I, mean, so. you know, I, think, I don't really think I'm first wave. Fam. I think I think Virginia Woolf was sort of firsty wave. Yeah, I'm your third <laughs> child, and you are you are second wave. I, am, I think I am. <laughs> I think I was. So what's that I, about? And, well, and how does Wolf? Does what? Do the second wave feminists like Wolf? I don't know any about this. A second, oh, second wave feminist. Look, okay, so so I didn't read what John had to say, but I'll just say how I sort of see a room of one's own, and then John can sort of step in and do whatever he needs to do with this. But so obviously, the two main issues or the two main arguments that a room of one's own makes is is one the argument for the 50 pounds a year and a room of one's own which is a pragmatic statement that if women are to write fiction and to be successful voices within literature they need means and space to do this and at the time and certainly in the past as she reviews it you know they, they have not had their own they did not have their own wealth they had to give their money over to their husband and they had no space in not even in the house they had children hanging off of them they had no energy or time or any way any space you know literally or figuratively in which to do that okay so so it was impossible and the other idea in the in the essay 
uh, or the series of talks, is this idea of the androgynous mind, which, which she attributes to Coleridge, but she expands on, is that the imagination needs to encompass both a female and a male perspective. And she talks about how, you know, she proposes this theory that in each of us, two powers preside, a male and a female. And she complains that in, you know, in, that many men are writing out of just one part of their brain, that really there has to be this, this this, uh, this sort of intercourse between the male part of the brain and the female part of the brain. Shakespeare's sister in the essay becomes a kind of metaphor for this. Um, and, and for her, those two points are actually linked because for her, she writes, a woman needs to have money and a room of one's own if she is to write fiction. And that leaves a great problem as to the true nature of a woman and the true nature of fiction unsolved. I mean, she sees those problems combined. Um, so we can talk about the points she makes in the essay. I mean, you know, she certainly tracks through literature and talks about, she proves, I think, pretty clearly that creative women who tried to write from their imaginations either went crazy or couldn't or wrote bad works because they were so pissed off, you know, and she proves that, you know, she, she, she talks about, um, um, you know, the importance of think, you know, thinking back through our mothers, if we are women and trying to, you know, cultivate that part of what you do. But I, I, I do think that when it comes to second wave or maybe even third wave, because I'm really going out on thin ice here, the income and the room of one's own space point, that, that's when I discovered her in, the, in 1980, right? That was very important, because those issues were very important then. Yeah. Um, and, now, and, now, important then. and now the women and, have the money and the room of their own, and they're still not happy. Well, hold on now. Stop it, okay? So first of all, they don't have the income to the to the extent that they need to have. It. It's not equitable, okay? So we can get some data on that. But they have it. It's better. But at the point where I discovered her, those were incredibly relevant issues, okay? And having a room of one's own, I mean, it is, you know, it's still still issues of misogyny, in, in the workplace, are, are, are this is very difficult stuff, and we can talk about kind of, you know, misogynistic corporate practices and subtle misogynistic interactions and so forth. At any rate, for me, I thought it really tracked then, and, you know, it carried her through to second wave. I think what's really interesting is this androgyny, this, the androgynous mind or the androgynous imagination. It's, it, it, that struck me as, I wonder, I, I know she is not popular, you know, with third wave uh, feminism. And I tried to look up some stuff, some scholarship on her and man, it, it's, na it's nasty. I, I, I don't want to talk too much about that. But I suggest, you know, she was, she was fairly, I guess you could say she was, um, let's just say she was not adamantly, militantly heterosexual. And that androgynous imagination or a mind resonates at least imaginatively with gender fluidity. So I have no idea how she would find that concept. 
I can't even speculate because she was really kind of quite caught caught in the conventions of her time and personally. But I think I mentioned this to you, Sam. I think if we took the most, I think if we took the most basic manifest, you know, I'm going to stop here. I'll I'll move on to this point later. Okay, let so, maybe let we can let John get himself into trouble. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't want to get in trouble on this. <laughs> um, yeah, no. What, what I was I was interested in um, in that particular point because I often like reading older nonfiction works almost for what for their difference from the present and what they can kind of say to the present that we're not seeing now because we're enmeshed in our own view of the debates. So when I reread it, I, I, I agree with you that the questions of economic independence aren't practically settled, but I. I guess I felt that that point was sort of theoretically generally accepted, that everyone kind of accepts that you need, uh, you need independent means of some kind if you're to produce. But I, it was the, I feel like in some ways she anticipates today's gender fluidity, but in another way she counteracts it. Because it seems to me when I look particularly younger people today that the, their utopian goal is almost to be rid of gender to be a kind of genderless self, a kind of sexless self, um, to not inhabit a gendered position at all, which I think on an earlier episode, I linked back to that idea of Gnosticism. And so Wolf's investment in this idea that there is a feminine and a masculine psychic force, this almost like Jungian idea that there are these like autonomous vectors of gender in the soul, I thought struck me as kind of interestingly uh, against the grain of that idea of an ideally genderless self and an ideally genderless society. So androgyny would almost be a surplus of gender rather than not having it at all. And I think that probably accounts for what you're finding in some of the scholarship, because that was the era in which I went to graduate school where it was actually very unfashionable to talk about somebody like Wolf because it was the the Judith Butler idea that gender was just a performance, that it wouldn't be anything that that lived in your psyche or lived in your soul. But I, I almost think there's something uh, here, I'll get in trouble. I almost want to say something sort of almost better about the way she sees it because at least there's something there. There's something present. You're not dealing with a, a kind of absence. It almost feels nihilistic the way people talk today. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I don't know if there's any uh, – there was any context or f- for her to go into a genderless, you know, an idea of, of genderlessness. I mean, I don't know – who of at her at her you know of her contemporaries was even thinking in that in that way at that time like this was the only way she was conceiving of it and i i you know i agree with you uh she she does not have that conception this was as close as uh as she could come to something like that Mm -hmm. um but but no, 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 no. She she was not genderless. She has a, a funny statement in in the. Um, I mean, let's see if I can find it. Uh, she has a, a really funny statement uh, about how. Um, uh, yeah, she says. In a hundred years, I thought, and this is in a room of one's own. She says, in a hundred years, I thought, reaching my own door. She she has this. You know, Women will have ceased to be the protected sex. Logically, they will take part in all activities and exertions that were once denied them. 
uh, the, you know, and she goes on how the nursemaid will heave coal, the shop woman will drive an engine. So she's still very, you know, she's still thinking very much in gendered terms. And she says, remove, remove that protection, expose them to the same exertions and activities, make them soldiers and sailors and engine drivers and dock laborers. And will not women die off so much younger, so much quicker than men, that one will say, I saw a woman today, as one used to say, I saw an aeroplane. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you know, that, that sounds like uh, an army advertisement. <laughs> <laughs> the U.S. military. Yeah. Well, you know, it's but the I, idea that yeah. womanhood will cease to be a protected occupation. Yes, mm-hmm. and and the idea that 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 uh, she's 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 suggesting that this this is a good thing, and and yet I'm not sure that this suggests that gender disappears. Right. It's, a, it's the idea of protecting gender. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and women have always been stronger than men. You have children for. Pete's sake. I can't... I can't even... Oh, you know, we have equipment. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing tougher than a than a, a woman of high character and real world experience. And, and there's nothing... There's nothing better than that. Well, I think she's talking about, you know, that sort of male-female notion existing in the imagination. Yeah. She found that a useful concept. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's the question, isn't it? Is that a useful concept, imaginatively speaking? Is that fertile? Yeah, I I mean, I found it a useful... Because like I said, I feel like a lot of the discourse today almost feels kind of nihilistic about subtracting things from the world rather than adding things to the world. So I found it uh, kind of uh, cheering or heartening in that respect, that idea of androgyny as opposed to genderlessness, which seem superficially, they seem so similar, but the more I think about them, the more they seem opposite. So now I'll ask my question because it's okay. So Rick right now is thinking if we took the, if we took Virginia Woolf and she were suddenly alive today, I, I was wondering what, what would she think about sort of the gender fluidity that is around her hmm. because certainly she would have views about this yeah i don't know an, and, an unrepressed virginia wolf may be no virginia wolf at all <laughs> well no one would be asking her to act on anything right right yeah but it, she would certainly have a lot of thoughts and she always was she was always watching her thoughts mm-hmm. she never didn't watch her thoughts so if we took the most basic manifestation of gender fluidity, which are very external, but they are the pronouns, it would be interesting to ask what would she adopt as her pronouns if she were suddenly transported today to today yeah, and asked, what are your pronouns, Virginia? I, I feel like uh, I don't want to be disrespectful, but I feel like there's a self-seriousness to aspects of those gestures that her really cutting arch wit would find hard to deal with mm-hmm. on a sensibility maybe. level. Like, I feel like she'd maybe laugh at the, that discourse a little bit mm-hmm. or say, you know, any pronouns, whatever, whatever you want to call me. It's, it's in a sense not up to me. Okay. That's my instinct, but 
because she wouldn't really she she would she would definitely take some time to answer that and she would come up with something that was not the pronouns given to her in in the set of choices she wouldn't answer or she would she would somehow do something outside the box that's what i've have been artful evasion of the question Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what do you think I don't know. I mean, like, I, I think that's probably just a, a good answer. It's cert- I don't know. I mean, I think the way that she was, if one were to look at her and describe her, I mean, there was definitely, you would have to include she. Mm-hmm. But there is also a kind of, there is also more than just she. Yeah. So maybe he, maybe she, he, and they. <laughs> right. <laughs> 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 that works. Okay. Well, I don't really have anything else. Well, I, I don't know anything else. Well, you just, that was wonderful because uh, I needed that and that capped our maternal May. We had a maternal May theme and <laughs> I couldn't think of a better way to cap it off than have you on and share your experience and knowledge about Virginia Woolf. Yeah, thanks okay, so well, much great. for coming on. It was great. Great, good. Oh, yeah, and I got Coreopsis. That's what I got. I got three Coreopsis, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to plant those. So thank you very much for having me on and enjoy wait, the wait, rest but, of the day. Before okay. you go, uh, do, you, do you have compassion for Septimus? Of course. Of course. Of course. <laughs> Isn't it so of sad? <laughs> yes, it's so sad. I, 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 it's... So sad. Of course it is. You know, you just want... Yes, it's heartbreaking, and it, yes, of course. You just wanted him to get some good treatment and find some friends and get back on his feet, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It, um, I think that... He, uh, sh- Yes, and I and I had uh, wait a minute. What is his? Is it uh, Racia or Lucretia? L- what's what's the name of his wife again? Um, yeah, wait, Rezia. Rezia. Yeah. Rezia. Yeah. I, I she's she's so lost. Yeah, she's lost. And and he is so uh, he is so um, caught inside of himself. He can't he can't get out and. Uh, I, yeah, I, I have nothing but compassion for him. Well, thanks, Mom, and thanks for bringing Virginia Woolf alive for us today. Thank you for calling, and um, have a wonderful day. Nice to talk to you. Okay. You too. Bye. All right. See you later. Bye-bye. Bye. And it's incredibly prophetic to me. It's a very contemporary novel. It is. It is. And also, it's modernist in the sense of it's uniquely ravaged by wartime. And that ravagement has been internalized in characters. And then they're trying to hold an exterior of stability or stolidity in the metropole. But that is breaking down, too. Yeah. And characters, the character that has represented that, because this is a post World War One novel. This is one of the um, 
most famous novels about reassimilation post World War One. What's that famous line? That when will the whip descend? Mm-hmm. Or yeah, uh, critics have launched that into a representative um, theme for this era. The feeling that in any moment you could be assaulted or invaded. And then Septimus, the character comes to tragically embody the worst of these post-war outcomes. And what have what has been your personal or pedagogical relationship to the character Septimus? I, I love Septimus. First of all, I think he's a great argument against people who think that Wolf was too caught up in her class privilege and too much of a snob. I think she represents this lower middle class male with tremendous authority and persuasiveness. Um, I love the way that his story functions for her as a meta commentary on the uses of literature itself, because we're told that he he's like a lower middle class guy trying to sort of improve himself with culture. Mm-hmm. And so he takes a night class and he ends up falling in love with Shakespeare and his hot teacher. Mm-hmm. And she says he went to war to fight for an England that consisted entirely of Shakespeare and Miss Isabel Pole. This was his belief. Yeah. And when he gets back, after he's been traumatized in the war, he's seen his best friend and maybe quasi—everybody in this book is bisexual—sort of quasi— uh, you know, quasi lover. There's a description, isn't it? Like they were like two dogs on a rug or something. I, I haven't read it in a while, but um, he thinks he tries to go back to the literature he loved before the war, and he goes back and he tries to read Shakespeare and Aeschylus and mm-hmm. Dante, and he finds it's just nihilistic nothingness, hatred. And I think Wolf is is commenting on the way that the the kind of positive construal of these writers, the unwillingness to see their dark side is a manipulation of them to serve as the props for the empire and the props for the for the nation. Uh, you think it's in that Wilfred Owen register? You think it's in that Siegfried Sassoon register of anti-war, anti-imperial yeah. futility of defending the nation in the 20th century? I do, and I think that she's almost offering a defense of her own novel's kind of quasi-nihilism because her her novel puts forth no affirmative value. But what's more threatening to Septimus is not this older literature, but it's the new discipline of psychology. And that's one of the most remarkable passages when he yeah. goes to the doctor and Wolf, who's so scrupulously buries her narratorial perspective in that Henry James way and each of her characters and right in the middle of the novel, dead center, goes on this Dickensian tirade in her own voice against this doctor and she says that he served proportion, he served conformity. Conversion. Conversion. He was this uh, figure of the empire. It's this proto-Foucault sense of psychology as evil. And it's really the psychologist that ends up causing Septimus to kill himself. Yes, yes. And I find that more timely than ever when we're drowning in this discourse of mental health that I think is counterproductive. Um, and, uh, And I think it's just something we need to keep in mind. Yeah, well, this is a complicated topic of discussion. <laughs> right. And there is no easy 
declarative statements. I just made a declarative statement. Which get to the bottom of it. <laughs> right. Because uh, there, as much as one wants to project culpability on, on um, you know, at, at best negligent and at worst um, malicious physicians around psychiatry and mental health, there is there are thresholds built into to mental illnesses which can be crossed, which reach point of crisis and either receive therapeutics and medical care or, or meet you know tragic ends. In the case of Septimus, but there is great argument and there's a great critique of the profession, like you're saying, that he he stomped his free will and his sense of human freedom and his aesthetic sense and his his Christ-like consciousness and his ability to associate symbols themselves and speak words and be free in words and expression itself and those things were demonized and turned inwards and became fuel for his suicide that that choking of human freedom by the medical community of mentally ill people is very real, but the, it always it, it's always wise to take that critique with a, a sort of edge of practicality around the uncontrollability and the medical nature of some of these pathologies, and that only a couple people are qualified to deal with them in um, acute scenarios. Which you know, I mean, you don't know if Septimus was in one, but then you go with Virginia Woolf's case and. She herself committed suicide. It was a different yeah. culture around suicide in those days. It was, yeah. <clears throat> Which I fear in some sense is coming back, mm-hmm. um, but in a different form, in a less aestheticized. Well, suicide is always aestheticized. That's kind of its terrifically appealing nature for people who commit it, but um, it's a one final grand act, or it's an effect on an audience right? that is the brain can run with in moments of of dismal contemplation and so I don't I see Holmes as Dr. Holmes as a villain and as an antagonist but I'm more interested in the way that Septimus receives him and fits him into his overt pathology it wasn't Mm -hmm. even ambiguous in the book it's not ambiguous whether or not he was delusional paranoid and a threat to himself she doesn't romanticize Mm -hmm. Uh, she shows Often by inhabiting the perspective of Septimus's wife, mm-hmm. Lucretia, she shows that he is a danger to himself and he is, a, frankly, a burden. Uh, yeah. and, and I think she probably saw herself at times as one. Um, and I think that real, you know, you, you have to be that re- ruthlessly realistic as a writer. So mm-hmm. it's not it's not a it's not a romantic story of romanticized madman who has the truth. I I do think he has the moral truth, right, for this book ultimately, the way he sees the connections and everything. Yeah. But, you know, he's not able to carry that into form, not the way Clarissa is. No, he's not because he's he got destroyed. Yeah. He got destroyed by the war. Yeah. And he now occupies broken matter and still an idealistic generative mind which um, can't reassimilate into that broken matter but I wonder I, I you know I like I have a diagnostic mind but obviously he has 
there's they didn't have it at the time PTSD it was shell shock I don't mm-hmm. even know if they had shell shock at the time I think they did they were getting there yeah, yeah. after World War One but obviously it's post traumatic stress disorder yeah but there is such a feeling of manic depression mm-hmm. in this novel I think that's in, I mean it's interesting because it that's wolves. what she had yeah, yeah she yeah. didn't have PTSD well she she probably did from her childhood sexual trauma but not in the way that that he would have with with the war so you're saying she's kind of applying her own mental illness to well i think it's a conflation and a confusion and a combustion and a combo but it's and it's her way of depositing in that character the full features of a mental illness as such that she's familiar with, mm-hmm. or she's unloading her full. It's not an exact diagnostic sketch, yeah. But it's like a fe- unloading of a feeling of what it is to be in these pathological mental states, mm-hmm. which border on human freedom and revelation. But the terrible paradox of that is the energy that it takes to create the ecstasy of revelation within these mental states is unstable and can as uh, as easily in those moments turn into the energy that is required to think of the most morbid and drastic right um outcomes yeah it's it, the same energy but it travels in these exactly yeah. and i've had to tell people in my own life that i mean i'm I'm luckily not psychotic the way septimus was in a way i right. think she was yeah, i'm merely word. neurotic but i've had to tell people like I, I if i weren't this neurotic i also couldn't do some of the things you admire <laughs> no there is that line i don't know some people think about this is think mental illness bipolar things like this has been it's a social phenomenon it's not a medical phenomenon yeah I've seen too much. I work in mental health now, and I was working with a, <clears throat> a resident a couple months ago, and and he he came in and he said, he said, Sam, he said, I figured out the code. I figured it out. <laughs> I love life. And he was talking about Christ, and he was talking about, and everything was exuberant and and revelatory, and he, he was freely associating. Mm-hmm. And there's some lines in there. It's like, it's best not to associate when you're in this state. Mm-hmm. Try to stay away from symbols. Try not to talk. It's like, yeah. yeah, that's the very fodder. But yeah, but the way that this person I was working with, he, and then he, but on a moment's notice, he would come in and he would say, uh, all I see is black and red. He says, I feel like I'm going to die. He said, are you going to assault me? He said, I can't trust anybody. And it would oscillate. Yeah. So there's some dysregulation, something like that. Yeah. But I felt low. I felt, how can I say, less intense versions of both of those. Yeah. I cracked the code. Because I, I cracked the code and I can't trust anybody. Yeah. They're the same thing. Yeah. Valued positively or well, negatively. Well, this, this guy was in an acute, very... Yeah acute psychotic state with that yeah we tried to get him in the hospital and he didn't want to go mm-hmm. he's like you're not going to lock me up you're not going to get me f- I'm not, not going to 
I'm going to be free. I'm free. I can do it. Life is good. But then he would say, are you going to assault me? Yeah. Why do I feel like I'm going to die mm-hmm. within 30 seconds? And then two weeks ago, we found him hanging from a bridge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he had hung himself off a bridge. Wow. But we couldn't have, legally, we couldn't have forced him to, you can't do that to an adult. You can't force right. them to um, commit to a psychiatric unit. But that every, we all knew because we had experience this is the only thing that was going to save his life. Yeah. So in Septimus' situation, mm-hmm. that's the that's the kind of experiential stuff I'm taking to it. Yeah. It's like, yeah, yeah I see him as his. And I, when I work with a guy like that, it's like, well, let's talk about freedom then. Mm-hmm. But let's also talk about what stability is and what silence and emptiness is and these things that Holmes was trying to. And so it's not so simple. And the tale of Holmes is the strangulator and the oppressor holds up, but it doesn't answer all the immediate questions fully. Right, sure. Stuff. And sure. then her, the end of her own life is a testament to that for me. Mm-hmm. There's no reason for artists to die. Yeah. I don't like the cult of suicide in the 20th century. No. I have a personal sort of commitment to that, those intervening in those cultures and these assumptions that to meet that sort of end is aligned with sort of a romantic, intolerable condition of soul. I don't think yeah. that's, I think that's a, um, that's a disease. That's mm. a cultural disease. It's mm. not necessary. Suicide is not necessary to be creative. Mm-hmm. Absolute heartbreak and instability is not necessary to have its opposite, which would be aesthetic ecstasy. Um, and I don't think, I mean, Wolf, obviously, I don't know enough about her. I'm talking, this is mostly from my experience. No, But I'm, uh, this is what, yeah. these are sort of real. I think, I think the one thing to say would be that the psychology she was dealing with even though she's a contemporary of Freud, the, the psychiatric establishment she would have been dealing with and representing in the book is pre-Freudian, extremely punitive, extremely moralistic, uh, extremely just wrong about, you know, the kind of dietary regulations it was mm-hmm. giving. Um, and so when you th- encounter her incredibly dystopian portrayal, you have to you know, understand that what she was dealing with is essentially late Victorian, uh, you know, bigotry, really. Um, And so I think that it's not fully comparable to today. It's not. Yeah. It's not. But in some ways it is. I mean, the advance of something like Freud. Yeah. Like if Septimus was... If Septimus... (laughs) Was alive today. <laughs> yeah. And he is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's why Wolf is a great novelist. He is alive. And <clears throat> if he was alive today and he was in that situation he was in with a wife and post-war, he would, the VA would take care of him. Mm-hmm. And the VA would put him in a hospital. Mm-hmm. And he would get second-generation antipsychotics. Yeah. And he would rest mm-hmm. in a locked unit. And then he would go to a trauma therapist, mm-hmm. and the trauma therapist would do EMDR therapy, eye movement therapy, and they would help him with his what he saw in the war. Mm-hmm. And then he might or might not stay on a medication regimen. Like that's what. Mm-hmm. It's much better than it was. But people still kill themselves. 
people definitely still kill themselves. Um, but today there are treatments which... Tell me something. I yeah. One of the things I often find fascinating and bizarre is people often say we need to destigmatize mental illness because it's not associated with violence. And they'll say something like, they'll give examples of like mass shooters. And they'll say like, well, he wasn't mentally ill. And I think, well, what, what is, if, if, if randomly shooting people isn't a sign of mental illness, what is mental illness? Is suicide by definition mental illness or? I don't know about that. That's an interesting question. I don't think so. Okay. I think the way I think about mental illness. Because it seems to me, just, just for me, it seems to me that it would be an act, not something essential to you. It would be evidenced by an act and murder or suicide no, might be evidence. You don't I mean, think? behaviors are accounted for in the meeting of a criteria of symptoms. Mm-hmm. So behaviorally, you could... That will either isn't gratuitous murder the ultimate yeah. symptom? <laughs> I I think I I think I comprehend the framework of what you're asking, and I don't and I'm not a doctor, but I do have real world experience, and I think that right now a lot of mental illness has been culturated and reinforced culturally. I think there. There is a segment of a, any given population, this is what I believe, at any given time in human history that's probably stable across all social and historical contexts. There's a segment of a population that will be genetically coded to express sort of inborn natural mental disorders, mm-hmm. in which for very interesting evolutionary reasons actually passed down into the genetic mm-hmm. sequencing and will just be there at, across all populations. Right. And then we have words for the expression of the symptoms of these different types of mental conditions. It's like bipolar and schizophrenia and depression. But those are just applications of things that are sort of natural. Mm-hmm. And then there's a ton of environmentals and stuff that are latent becomes activated, and that's a complicated process. So there's mul- multiple factors. But the point is, is there's, I believe that that segment remains relatively stable, but you'll get in a given cultural context, which will either sort of validate and then extrapolate and more broadly apply that understanding of mental disorder to larger swaths of human behavior within the society like mm-hmm. we're doing in the United States. Yeah. You'll get into cultures like in certain cultures in East Africa where the opposite will take place where even that segment of natural that natural condition won't be acknowledged or recognized mm-hmm. as the physiological phenomenon it is. So there's like but for me, I'm sort of a moderate in the sense that there's always going to be this segment and then there's going to be a surplus or a, or a, a mild um, deficit based on um, sort of the conditions of that society. But it's just going to be like a stable segment. And then they're the real – I think those people are the real losers when mental health and mental health treatment gets conflated with the broader gener- – population 
and there's so many factors. But that's what I believe. Does that help at all? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I still, I mean, I have this uh, probably impractical sense of, like, skepticism about categories. That I, I just think categories are... Yeah, well, they're necessary. I know, I know they are, and I don't, I don't, I don't doubt that they are. But I always see this. Maybe this is <laughs> disordered thinking of some kind. But I yeah. always see them as so porous and so much tools of, of control. They, they are, but like I was saying, there's a. That's, that's kind of cynical. Yeah, and <laughs> no, it's it's. Uh, and there's a history to back it up, but it's not the. It's not really the history. And especially the contemporary history. And then, um, like I was saying, there's a threshold to this stuff mm-hmm. where it's easy to be in this sort of relative, the zone of relativity and questioning of is it really mentally ill or is it just societally imposed? Is he just misunderstood? Uh, there's, there's, yeah. there's lots of room for that. And I think that's where most people in. Right. But always keep in mind, always keep in mind, like, in these discussions, that's a cultural discourse. Yeah. That's not, but there's a threshold where you break into an extremely serious, like. Yes. No, I went, when I was in high school, a couple of us had to go to somebody's mother and say, she's suicidal and you need to get some kind of help for this person. Um, and that was, I think, was that's the kind of threshold experience you're talking about, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you can feel it too. Uh, yeah, I you could. Can, and you can feel it, and you feel it on the street. You felt it on the street with yeah. people who, you've been engaged with. You kind of know that something has gone wrong. Mm-hmm. Now, what's interesting is artists who recognize that threshold, so it's not sort of a cultural discourse on the relativity of mental illness and its potentially dehumanizing psychiatrists, potentially dehumanizing aspects of sort of this like modernist cult of suicide don't and it's understandable but this this is not so interesting to me mm-hmm. as an artist what yeah. she does here yeah. as far as mental illness as subject mm-hmm. it's interesting for me is like artists who go recognize the threshold don't dwell on the sort of cynical relativity about these conditions or facts of human nature then move into the disorder itself and go so far in that they break through a barrier into other allegorical mythological realms through it Mm-hmm. Though that's interesting, that can be interesting. And you think that happens with Septimus here? No, no. Okay, I think. Well, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't. I. I think it's an interesting question. But what would be an example? For you? Um, I think Poe does it. Mm-hmm. I think Faulkner does it. I think Morrison did it in Sula. Morrison probably did it in Beloved. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I think that's right. Um, I think those are good examples. Yeah. And you, you think Wolf misses it somehow? I think she's straddling it because I think there's a specific historical context where she – it's hard. She has I, maybe too much of a vendetta. Too much of a – look what happened to her, man. That's yeah. very serious. It's not right. fun at all. This, right. I don't like that at all, what yeah. happened to those writers in mm-hmm. that period. I don't think it's acceptable. I don't think it's inevitable. I don't. I think it's the fault of – Culture, medicine, history. I mean, no one's really at fault as an individual, but it's not, to me, that's not anything. 
as far as aspects of retaining uh, modernist aspects, aspects of discarding modernist aspects, that cult of suicide stuff, that Casagamas, Picasso shit, mm-hmm. all that shit that went on, Hemingway shit, the Plath, um, Hart Crane, yeah, all that stuff. I'm not like, to me, what like one of my personal commitments, like I don't even want to. To me, that's like there's no need for that at all. Yeah. That is so far. That is such a waste and like such a tragedy. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you? Do? I mean, well, it's probably too big of a conversation. Why did that happen in the twentieth century? Because even the people that didn't kill themselves killed themselves. Joyce Fitzgerald with alcohol. Um, mm-hmm. Faulkner, really. He, I mean, he was only sixty when he died. I think sixty-one. Um, there was clearly something that went very wrong mm-hmm. in the twentieth century with artists. Um, yeah, yeah, and I'm with you on not romanticizing it, uh, and I, I don't. And I think that, um, and I'm with you on suicide being seductive as an aesthetic act, but is actually not the aesthetic act because yeah. the aesthetic act is productive and generates well, let me more. Ask, let, yeah, let me ask you this question real quick. So, oh, this is complicated. This is complicated, but <laughs> this is complicated. It's kind of interesting thought, though. Um, my ideal artist would so the way that Holmes looks at Septimus's delusions. There's no room for some symbolism. There's no recognition of any sort of value or merit in this, the wild associations and the delusions that he's expressing. And we get Sept- Septimus's internal dialogue and it's paranoid but it's also ecstatic and rapturous <clears throat> but do you think and obviously Holmes would be on one side of the spectrum looking at it as as puerile as insane inane symptomatic should be discarded in silence right that's yeah. how you look at his energy even there's a gender like you're not a man you're not a yeah you yeah. can't control yourself you're not yeah. a proportion you yeah you don't have discipline so that's one side of the spectrum the other side of the spectrum would be Equally dangerous would be what Septimus is doing himself, which is the complete investment in the phenomenon of like moving meaning and rapid association within the subjective experience, like a terrifying and joyous and an apocalyptic moving spectrum of meaning that he's a completely invested in. That would be the other side of the spectrum for Holmes, right? Right. So it's like, as an artist, yeah. Like, where do you think Wolf is, as a writer, treating what this the subject of Septimus's delusions does? She she doesn't treat him like Holmes, no. but she doesn't treat him like Septimus treats no. him. In fact, the it's interesting. It's it's not the suicidal writers that the the writers I think of that fall into the Septimus trap are Blake, are Lawrence, the Cranks, the ones mm-hmm. who seem to fully buy into some private myth. That their they, their work ultimately fails because they're tormenting you at this private myth yeah. that you don't really have access to. Yeah. Whereas what you need to do is to be able to take one step back and say, um, actually, who's really good at this is your boy Pinchon, who could easily lose his mind with what he's writing about. Mm-hmm. But you have to take one step back and say, this is interesting. It's beautiful. This has it, encoded meaning. There to- is truth in it. But I need to take one step back in order to put it yeah. into something where I could share the grain of truth. Well, keep it bouncing. Yeah. And, you know, history is a, is what Pynchon uses largely to encase that in history or in, right. 
surround that in history, which Joyce, which Wolf can't do here because of the form of the novel. Yeah, she's a little bit restricted. Yeah, but yeah. that is that is that question. Like we get we get scales all the time. We get mental health discourse all the time, even from the subversives, post lefts, the schizo posting, and mm-hmm. you're autistic. All this shit. The people are using it. But that the spectrum of that's an interesting spectrum is in the great interest confusion and untamed nature of these articulated pathologies in a delusional, mentally ill person that have been, in some degree or another, in, is, is within most great writers and artists. I don't want to pathologize all of them, but at least that experience. I mean, some of it is universal. Some of it is downright creative. Yeah. Um, there's books and books on this, but within that spectrum, like... What's, well, what, what is an interesting spectrum is are you Holmes or are you Septimus? Mm-hmm. Like how seriously do you take it? What aspects of it do you take? How do you begin to embody it? Mm-hmm. Do you create a critical distance from it? And how do you use it towards your own ends? Yeah. Um, that's an interesting question. It is. I think Wolf's one of Wolf's faults in her fiction this isn't true in her nonfiction, but yeah. in her fiction, she's not very funny. <laughs> I think that's right. Like yeah, Joyce yeah. is saved, but Joyce and Pinchon right. both are, I think, saved by humor. Yep, they're able to bring bring a kind of humor. Yeah, they can always take take a step back and laugh. At, at I laugh time. when I'm supposed to cry. <laughs> right, <laughs> and I think laughter is very. There's a line in Ulysses: "He laughed to free his mind from his mind's bondage." Yeah. That laughter can be very, very freeing and very healing. 